everyone. I'm Betsy. And I'm Greg. And we want to invite you to check out our podcast, Going On 30. Each month, Betsy and I take a look back at a movie that was released 30 years ago that was either nominated or should have been nominated for Best Picture. We talk about the legacy of the film, choose the best scenes and performances, and explore our own hot takes about the movie. And we discuss the greatness of Tom Cruise, an actor oh, who has graced our screens for multiple decades, taking on some of the most artistically challenging pursuits while displaying what can only be described as an everyman relatability. An actor, nay, a thespian, who pushes oh. the boundaries of what the medium is capable of while revealing the humanity that's underlying. All right, all I'm of- done. I cannot, I cannot tolerate this anymore. So listen to Going on 30 every month right here on the Popping Collar Speed, wherever you get your podcast. I love you, Tom. Oh, jeez. I'm a podcaster. What on earth is that? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not laughing at you. You just, you just reminded me of my mom. Wally, what are you doing? Ah, she's the worst. You're fantastic. Um, the podcast is kind of like a, it's like a radio show that's not on the radio. It's on, it's on the internet. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> that's also like my mom. Uh, it makes it sound more confusing, doesn't it? Uh, it sounds like this. But you still ain't calling I left myself, my pager, and my home phone at the bottom I sent two letters back in autumn You must not have got them probably- Welcome to Popping Collars The podcast that lives at the intersection of religion and pop culture The longest running Episcopal podcast on the planet Earth I'm your host My name is Greg Knight I am the associate for Christian formation at the Church of Bethesda by Sea in Palm Beach, Florida With me are my co-hosts Here's how we're doing it this time from the birthplace of Dermot Mulroney and Mackenzie Phillips, it's Betsy Carmody. Betsy, welcome to the show. Whoa. What? Big shoes to fill. Dermot Mulroney and Mackenzie Phillips? I haven't thought about Phillips? Mackenzie Phillips in years. My goodness. Um, yes, hi, I'm Betsy Carmody. I serve here. I don't think they were born at Episcopal High School in Alexandria, Virginia. But that is where I serve as head chaplain. And we are in winter trying to keep it up. It's the longest February coming up is the longest three months of the year at boarding school. It's very tough. <laughs> did, did Mackenzie Phillips die? What? She's really? done many she's, things. She survived she her body. Yes. Yeah. But, I think yeah. she's okay. Oh, I think good. She's okay. I liked her. Well, okay. I love One Day at a Time. That's one of my favorite shows. From the birthplace. Of Olivia de Havilland and John Steinbeck. It's Ricardo Avila. Ricardo. Yeah. Wow. Thank you, Greg. John Steinbeck was born down here? Over what? Here? According to the internet. Do they say specifically Los Gatos? Or? Said Los Gatos, yeah. John Steinbeck was born in Los Gatos. What there's, there's That's what nothing. I'm reading on the internet, and the internet never lies. No, no. There is a John Steinbeck house in Salinas, California, one block away from the diocesan mm. offices. Um, I've been there. The I John- stayed at the Quality Inn just up the street. Oh. oh. Mm. If you have to say quality in the title. Hey, hey, <laughs> I'm a Choice Rewards Gold member, okay? <laughs> 
Uh, my name is Ricardo Avila, and I am from the birthplace of John Steinbeck and Olivia de Havilland, who I think is still alive, Olivia de Havilland. She's like 117 or something. Uh, Los Gatos, California. I am the rector of St. Luke's Episcopal Church there in Los Gatos. Um, As of this recording, we have... Oh, she died in 2020. Sorry, died in 2020. Yeah, I was about to say. Yeah, Yeah, very recent. Sorry. No, that's all right. (laughs) Uh, Now I'm thinking about her. She lived around Carmel. You know, when you go to Carmel, you get like the big Carmel fat magazine with like 100 pages of ads and like eight pages of articles. And she was in that and she was really gracious and lovely. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, where were we? (laughs) My name is Ricardo Avila. I am the rector of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Los Gatos, California, birthplace of John Steinbeck and the late Olivia de Havilland. Uh, I might be going to the Holy Land this year, which uh, be the first time. Uh, it's come up quite suddenly. And so I'm sort of, I don't know, not trusting it or something. I'm not registering yet because I'm nervous, but uh, it could happen in late May and June. So we shall see. I'll keep you posted. And what I, kind of trip is it? Well, there's a fellow who is the canon or a former canon presenter at Grace Cathedral. And he's been leading these kind of pilgrimages to the Holy Land for almost 20 years. And he has some really strong connections with Palestinian Christians there, including, I think, an Anglican priest. And so they've 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 led folks, but it's a whirlwind. It's like four nights in Israel staying at St. George's house, part of that the cathedral mm-hmm. there. And then we're going up to Nazareth for three nights and staying with some nuns and then back for another three nights in Jerusalem via Bethlehem, Jericho, other kinds of things. But it's all in like 10 days. So we'll see, but it'll be my first time. I'll sort of, I think I'm going to, I'm picturing it as a, an overture to the Holy Land. And then I go back and kind of see with more depth, hopefully. So yeah, that's, that's, that's my news. Awesome. I love that we have this podcast where the phrase, I'll be staying with some nuns doesn't sound weird. You know? <laughs> like where else in life would that? Just a few nuns. It's fine. Yeah. Good <laughs> yeah, yeah. Play poker. And uh, from the birthplace, oh my gosh, I have a giant list to pick from. (gasps) We've got some good ones. I know. Uh, Here's what I'll give you. You ready? From the birthplace of Malcolm X and Marlon Brando. How about that? It's Liz Easton. I love it. Thank you. I thought you were going to say Johnny Carson. Mm. uh, Actually, no, Johnny Carson was born in um, Norfolk, Nebraska. Excuse me. But um, anyway, thank you, Greg. Um, uh, my name is Liz Easton. I'm the canon to the ordinary in the Diocese of Nebraska. We were supposed to have a huge winter storm today. They closed schools. They closed everything, like preemptively. And then it just never came. It was so it was so <laughs> disappointing. We got like a little dusting of snow and it just never quite got cold enough. So I was kind of looking hmm. forward to one of those big snow days that are so um, cozy and beautiful and that you worry about tomorrow you know but during the time of you just enjoy the snow globiness of it all but we didn't really get that so i don't know what's going to happen i have two things to say (laughs) i know this is early um i just looked up Mackenzie phillips because i kind of didn't believe you that she was still alive well she is still alive and then the other thing is greg what about you and where you're from and who's born from there yeah who's born in in bethesda 
by the sea of Palm Beach, Florida. Dude, I didn't even look. Let's see. Uh, birthplace. Should we guess? Okay. Famous people from Palm Beach, Florida. Ellen Barkin. George yeah. Hamilton. Okay. That's a good one. Yeah. I think I win. I think I win with Malcolm oh, X yeah. and uh, Marlon Brando. Totally. Today, we're talking about pop culture fandom. What does that mean? Well, Webster's defines fandom as... Okay, hang on. I cracked myself up I don't there. let students do this in chapel talks. You know, I allow this here. I love this. Yeah. This is like the dumbest intro ever. You have to say Today it with a straight face. Like, Webster's Dictionary defines fandom as... Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> That's right. Today we're talking about pop culture fandom. What does that mean? Well, Webster's defines fandom as the state or attitude of being a fan. Yeah. That's a terrible definition. That's how you define a word with a word. That's not a very helpful <laughs> definition. So let me see if I can do better. If you've ever heard of Swifties or the Bay Hive or Trekkies or Bronies or anything else that identifies a group of people by what they like, then you've heard about the world of fandom. Sometimes it's cute. Sometimes it's incredibly nerdy. And sometimes it's problematic. Where will each of us land on that spectrum? Let's find out as we go to the bag. Oh, I looked in the bag. I probably shouldn't have done that. I feel like mm. that could affect, affect the outcome. It is an R for Ricardo. <gasps> Yay! I never get to go first. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm about as ready as I'll ever be, so I will just go on in. Now, I'm pretty sure no one else has chosen this uh, this particular <laughs> fandom subculture. And, and, and Greg, thank you for suggesting it. But indeed, um, my fandom pick is... Uh, Charles Dickens fans, lo and behold. Uh, and to be more specific, a certain event that happens in late July every summer called the Dickens Universe on the UC Santa Cruz campus, which I attended faithfully probably for nine years or so. You know, there's no way to describe it without sounding, sounding like a total geek. So I'll just go on ahead and tell you what it is. So first of all, I was I was lured into this subculture by William, my husband, who is uh, an avid Dickens reader. 30 plus years ago, some professors of English at UC Santa Cruz, one of whom is named um, John Jordan and another one named Murray Baumgartner, they decided to have a little get together uh, about Charles Dickens. And from there was the seed for this thing that's now this amazing week in the summer. So you've probably never been to the UC Santa Cruz campus. UC Santa Cruz, it's on this beautiful mountain. It's got redwoods everywhere. They're known for their kind of ecological majors and things like that. But it's a gorgeous campus. And what you do is for a week, you go and you stay in the dormitories and you eat in the cafeteria and um, you have discussions on Charles Dickens. They choose a different book every year. And it's different levels of people. So there are like professors from around the world. And then there are grad students who are like the grad students are their own thing. They always they go, they stay out drinking late in someone's room and they're partying. Then they get up and they lead a discussion or something. Uh, and they're always the cool kids. And they're, you know, in their 20s and 30s. 
And then there are teachers, high school teachers and such. And then there are just the rest of us who just love going. And there are a few high schoolers as well. So basically, every I'm, I'm not telling this very exciting. It's, it's a very exciting thing, but I'm not describing it well. It's a cross. Between, are there costumes? Are there costumes? Yes, there is. At the very end, there is a okay. ball. Okay. Yes. Okay. okay. Oh, yeah. Yes. Okay. Right. I'm excited about that. <laughs> okay. Maybe I should just get to that part. But here's the thing. <laughs> no. The Dickens universe is a cross between summer camp and book club. That's really what it is. So you go and you stay in the Redwoods and dorms with people who have gone every single year for 33 years and no matter what the book, and then people who are coming for the first time. And it's beautiful and relaxing. And you have conversations over breakfast. You're arguing. You know, the days are very full. You get up, you have breakfast, and then you go to a, a lecture or a, a discussion group led by a professor. And then there's a lecture at about 930 in the morning. You have coffee and you sit in this big hall. And then you have your grad student-led discussion, which to my mind is the best part of the week. Because you can actually discuss certain things like, why did Dombey treat his daughter that way? Or, you know, it was... Uh, was Martin Chuzzlewit really thinking that he was going to conquer America when, you know, all these things, you know, David Copperfield, who did he really love? Who's the biggest villain? So everyone's discussing the book. They're discussing it at lunch, at dinner, on walks through the Redwoods. And then there's an afternoon lecture. There's afternoon tea with China and, I mean, fancy China and the ladies make little cakes and things. Uh, and then you have an evening discussion and dinner. There's um, postprandial potations, so you have drinks after dinner. It's a whole thing, and they show a movie. There's usually a BBC version of the movie. You're all smiling. You're all no, smiling. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I, I'm just else. enjoying yeah. the the total nerd out. I'm just. I love enjoying. anything where like scholars and fans, yes, like yeah. academic scholars and armchair scholars get to come together. And just share their love of something. I think that's so cool. Exactly. Um, there are these um, kind of silent auctions of different things. You can buy books. A guy comes with his antique bookstore and the other stuff. But they show movies. That, so there's there's a BBC adaptation of every Dickens novel, basically. And they'll show it in installments in the evenings and in the afternoon. And you go and you watch. And it ends at 11 at night. And you go on the dark campus back to your dorm room. I mean, it's kind of heaven on earth. Everybody's super nice. And then on Thursdays, there is um, a play, at least the last seven, eight years there has been. And I've been involved in the place. I've been Mr. Dombey in Dombey and Son. Oh. Uh, and so there are musical numbers. You try to dress up somehow, however you want. I've worn top hats and things. And it's hilarious. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to describe because it is really geeky. Like the jokes come from inside stuff about Dickens and stuff like that. Uh, and then we have a huge party afterwards where people have made these delicious like lavender lemon poppy seed cake. Like the sort of thing that you wouldn't like find in a regular place, but it's just beautiful, fancy, old fashioned stuff. And then Friday, yes, there is a ball. They hire out a... Um, a band that plays old English reels and they teach you how to do the old timey dances. And there are women who wear like super big ball gowns and very kind of, and men with top hats and tails. And it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, I wear shorts and a t-shirt, frankly, I'm, I, I can't pull it off, but um, they love it. That's not true. You could pull it off. I, I don't believe it. you. 
That's true. Yeah, I, could. I, I could pull it off. It gets you in a waistcoat. We could do this. <laughs> I think one of the uh, really cool things about this experience, too, is how, you know, everyone here shares a love for reading and for literature. Um, and whether you specialize in 19th century, you know, British literature, yeah. American literature, it's really great um, to meet other people that are also nerdy and love to read. Just delve into all aspects of it because you can get something from every little event that goes on here. We're grateful to have this opportunity to come to Dickens Universe. Um, it's an enriching experience. Most definitely. I think we're both super thankful and grateful for this experience. Um, the Dickens universe, it really is pretty magical. Uh, this summer's is July 23rd to the 29th, and they're focusing on A Tale of Two Cities. And then the other thing I would say is probably true of a lot of fandom. It really, it gives you a sense that you belong to something. You know, people become friends for years through this. There are Dickens communities around the world um, that meet in small groups locally and they'll go through a book together and discuss it. I have two things. One is that this reminds me, uh, I recently rewatched the Gilmore girls and have you watched that Ricardo? No. Okay. So one of the characters owns a bed and breakfast in a new England town. And at one point they host the Poe society and it's hilarious. Mm -hmm. It's like exactly what you're describing, but for Edgar Allan Poe and they're like these dueling Poe's who are like in full character and they do dramatic readings of the Raven and um, it's just very funny. So I reminded me of that. And then here in Nebraska, we have um, the Willa Cather foundation's Cather spring conference, which is very similar. I don't think they dress up, but it's the same deal. It's like readers and scholars together in community enjoying um, the town of red cloud, Nebraska, where Willa, Willa Cather grew up. And we have a little church. It's actually a deconsecrated church where she was baptized. And every year we do a service there for um, the Catholic conference. And it's really, it's just really fun. So nice. those are my two things. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing, the Dickens universe. I'm not going this year, partly because of the Holy Land possible trip I'll be taking. Um, but that's what I've got to say. God, goodness, I could go on forever. <laughs> <laughs> I you're a true you're a true fan do you guys have a name like dickensians or something you know we don't um i was trying to think of something to just say that was pithy but um no mm. just dickens lovers the thing is oh the other you were talking about your poe conference uh mm -hmm. on, on that tv show there's apparently a Jane Austen society as well. And the, the Dickens people I know, like, oh, I go to the Jane Austen society too. They'll be like, what is that? Five novels? <laughs> wow. They're all down on Jane Austen, right? Oh, whatever. What do you talk about? <laughs> you know? um, but Dickens has 15 novels, uh, uh, one of which is unfinished. And he's got Christmas stuff. And there's all kinds. And then we'll pair it. Sometimes they'll pair it with other other writings of the time. So uh, our next offering will come from Liz. Uh, and, Liz. All right. I'm afraid that I have that Betsy and I maybe picked the same one, but I know that Betsy can definitely contribute to mine. Okay. And in the interest of like vulnerability and full disclosure on the pod, this is like a fandom that I'm like actively struggling with engaging and it's not a um 
a super defined fandom, but I'm talking about all of the true crime media mm-hmm. and the communities that gather around it, which has become, which has always existed. I mean, seriously, since the beginning of time, people have been interested in crimes and violent crimes. Um, but in the last few years, there's just been like a huge uptick, which we've all seen on Netflix and cable television, but then especially in podcasts. So the the fandom term that I would use would be the term that's used to describe fans of the podcast, my favorite murder, which is murderinos. Oh, and um, so my favorite murder is a true crime comedy podcast, which has probably been on since like 2015 or 16. And the premise of the show is that two comedians who are also friends with each other banter for a while and then they each tell a true crime story and i don't know um, whether georgia would consider herself a comedian but well i think that maybe that now she is maybe because she is okay okay. she doesn't do stand-up so it's it's georgia hardstark and karen kilgariff and karen kilgariff is like a veteran stand-up comedian and also um, a comedy writer and georgia hardstark had a career on the cooking channel Yes. Yeah. Um, and then did some like sketch comedy and stuff. But they are two women who found when they met each other at a party once that they were both interested in true crime. And it was like sharing a secret, like dirty little secret, like, oh, my God, you like that? I like that, too. And what they discovered was that lots and lots of people, particularly women like this, probably the true crime podcasts that started it all that we're all probably most familiar with is Serial which um, came out by NPR's podcast studio years ago. And that kind of started the beginning of this obsession. So I guess I sort of struggle with this because the truth is that I, I really love my favorite murder as entertainment. Like, I think it's funny. And the first part of the podcast is totally just the banter of two friends, which I find comforting. And then I find the stories that they tell interesting so that's sort of like one aspect of this for me, if this fandom is just liking the podcast. But the other is all of the energy around true crime stories that feels both like interesting and compelling to me, but also definitely problematic. And you can list all of the reasons why true crime media can be problematic. It's, it often centers the stories of white people. It often centers the stories of middle class and upper middle class people. It's violent. And there is uh, probably a minority contingency of people who follow this media who almost are like parasocial fans of the criminals, <laughs> not of the mm-hmm. victims. So like we saw this with Netflix's Dahmer this year, especially among really young people like teenagers because they cast this kind of sexy uh, actor to play the super disturbing person. There was almost like a fandom around Dahmer, Jeffrey Dahmer, which feels very problematic itself. So I've always been interested in crime stories. I think in the way that a lot of people are like a crime is a cataclysmic event in a person's life, in the life of a family and a community And the stories that are told around that can be really um, rich, honestly. And I'm sort of interested in like catching the bad guy, like everything that goes into that, escaping the bad guy. 
I'm not so much interested in the bad guy himself as much as like the tension and like the thriller aspect around it. But I also know, and I think of this specifically as a Christian, like when I'm really trying to be a better follower of Jesus and a better person, I am aware that the things that I consume bring into my life and my spirit and my body are much more than like the food that you eat or what you drink. Like when I'm really feeling healthy, like I'm conscious of like what I'm eating and drinking and stuff, what I'm bringing into myself that way. When it comes to the media that I consume, I'm not always that careful. And sometimes it does feel dark and a little gross (laughs) to be essentially finding entertainment in the tragedies of other people, the worst things that they've ever experienced. And when it comes to the media telling of these stories, very often... Um, the families of survivors are not consulted in the telling of these stories. So like the families of the survivors of Jeffrey Dahmer, who were primarily young black gay men, no one consulted with them. They just turned on the TV one day or opened up the newspaper and saw that the most horrifying thing that had ever happened in their life was being turned for entertainment and profit for other people And that they were not even consulted about how to tell their stories or whether to tell their stories. And that to me feels really bad. (laughs) Like that, that is not good. I can't imagine being in that circumstance. With my favorite murder, they have faced a lot of criticism over the years, which I think that they've responded to pretty graciously. Like if you listen to the whole podcast, you hear these people really growing and developing as like people and as storytellers. I agree. I agree with that. I love it. And one of the things that they actually are good at doing because a comedy true crime podcast just sounds so gross. Now they weren't so much at the beginning, but now they are like super adept. I mean, really sophisticated at telling jokes and being funny at the expense of like the dirt bag in the story and honoring the dignity of the victims. It's it's actually pretty amazing from a storytelling standpoint that they can do that, especially um, unrehearsed and pretty conversationally. A few months later, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation reported that a dead 175 pound bear was found among 40 open containers of cocaine (gasps) matching the packaging used by Thornton. Oh no, the bear OD'd. This is that poor bear had OD'd on the cocaine (laughs) and had presumably been thrown from the plane mid-flight because it was carrying too much weight. Wait, no. Let me read that again. (laughs) (laughs) That poor bear had OD'd on the cocaine that had presumably been thrown from the plane mid-flight because it was carrying too much weight. He's he's going down his checklist. He's like, cougar ants, check. Altimeter, check. A bear, check. Check. Get the bear on this plane. (laughs) A bear on cocaine. (laughs) That poor bear. Oh, that poor bear thought it was like powdered sugar. He's like, mmm, delicious cereal. I see him like diving doing a dive <laughs> a perfect dive and then he's walking around smoking and talking about we should open a restaurant oh my god a restaurant <laughs> called bear essentials <laughs> it's all honey oh my god <laughs> we gotta get some bees in on this sticks his head in a beehive anyway their fans are called murderinos um it is a complicated fandom that i'm not so sure about my consumption of that media i feel like i'm questioning 
watching it all the time. And um, like, I listen to my favorite murder, like old episodes as I fall asleep. Cause mm-hmm. I find it comforting. Bye. Like I find them, I find their banter oh. comforting. But eventually, you know, I'll wake up in the middle of the night and be like, and then they stuffed her body into a trunk. And like, this can't be good for me. So I'll I'll open it up for discussion now. Well, I just have a follow-up question to that statement, Liz, which do you Mm -hmm. find your behavior affected by, like, after listening to it? Like, are you more cautious? Are you more, like, whatever? Well, to an extent, and I'll tell you, like, I tend to believe that the world is not as dangerous as we think it is. Right. Um, And I think statistically that's true. And I also know that I've encountered a lot of icky stuff and like dangerous stuff. And it has been helpful in some cases. Like one of the um, taglines of the podcast is F politeness. Because one of the things that you notice, especially in older stories, think about Ted Bundy, that a lot of women found themselves not that it's their fault but they found themselves in dangerous situations because they couldn't bear to be impolite or unkind to a strange man and um i was assaulted on a on a run i'm fine it wasn't that serious don't worry but still and it was exactly for that reason that i couldn't bear to not to not give someone directions when they stopped and asked me for directions and then a situation unfolded. So there are aspects of self-defense that sort of come out of these stories. But then I'm also afraid that they create a worldview that's maybe more dangerous than it really is. Like, for example, children are not just kidnapped out of their front yard. Like, it's never been true that children have been kidnapped by strangers in any large number. And our entire generation of parents were not, I don't mean our parents, I mean us as parents, grew up in a culture that believed that they were because of the few really famous child kidnappings. Mm -hmm. And that was just never true. And that belief has completely shaped our culture, the way that we parent, the way that kids grow up, the whole helicopter parent thing. So I can see that an increased attention to true crime could create a culture where we believe that the world is more dangerous than it really is. Yeah, I think it's a greater awareness for my surroundings. Whereas I would have just bopped through the world with my white privilege, like nothing's going to happen to me, you know? And I I don't think it's now like, I'm like, I just, it's a street sense. It's like that radar is turned on for me in a way that it wasn't like, why unlock my car very far away from my car? I'm not going to do that anymore. Why unlock Mm -hmm. all the doors of my car? I don't need Mm -hmm. to do that. I just unlock the driver's door, right? There's a reason why that's on my like right i i agree with liz i mean i think that this has been something that i've had interest in from from childhood and and it goes through peaks and valleys of interest you know like right now i'm completely obsessed with another podcast i haven't listened to this podcast in forever but as someone who's gotten a letter on my favorite murder yes before, betsy was read yes. on my favorite murder what? Was read on my favorite murder yes i was um, but there i really said you know they've wondered at times like do they have people in the clergy who listen to their show? And I really said that, yes. And and for me, it's about telling stories of marginalized people who are victim blamed and shamed for decades and being able to say those stories and bring them into a new light and talk about them in a different way that I think their storytelling abilities and their, the way they, and again, the growth in standing for justice, their change in use of language, right? Mm-hmm. 
you know, that I now use the term sex worker. I don't use other terms, right? You know, mm-hmm. you just, you start to do that work and how do we give humanity and dignity to, to people who have found themselves on the absolute worst days of their lives and the last days of their lives. So I got a few things. Yeah. yeah. You, you mm-hmm. go ahead. I have a couple of things too. <laughs> <laughs> so it feels like it, it would really make me shrivel up. The people who watch the news and think that the world is so violent out there. And so, as you were saying, they change their behavior. They don't go out at night. Or the, you know, some of that's good, it's smart, but some of it is just like life constricting. And I, I'd almost rather not know about it. And 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 the world is violent, but it's like the news. You only hear the bad stuff. And so I, I guess I, I wonder about that. And the other thing is I've asked on this podcast like twice, and you all have answered, like, why is there such a uh, thing about like women are really into it? You were saying it's like a thing. And I think one of you said before that it was something about it's almost empowering in a way because you you get to see the story and see what happened and you get that information for your, you know, your behavior out in the world to protect yourself. Mm-hmm. And so I, 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 I don't I mean, I'm a guy and I'm, you know, I'm a scaredy cat and all that, but uh, it's just different being a woman in the world, I'm sure, obviously. Yeah, I think that that's true, that that's a reason why the why these stories are so popular. And I also think that it's a way of aggrandizing the genre. You know, like it is, it is true that one in three women will experience violent crime at some point in their life. It's also true that men are the victims of homicide way more than women are, like a lot more. So... Oftentimes with these podcasts, they are women's stories. It's women telling women's stories. So there is sort of a sorority aspect. And I don't mean that in like the collegiate way. I mean, like in a deeper way of being in your community, kind of hearing your stories, whether or not they're stories that you actually identify with. Betsy, if you got a letter read on this famous podcast, why is that not in our intro to our podcast? You should say the line. I put it on Instagram. Podcast. I put it on Instagram when it happened. I was like, I was like popping collars on Betsy Carmody. Mm. Nice. I'm Episcopal podcast. I'm going to add it to the list and letter read on. <laughs> Famous. Featured, much more featured. They called, me, they called me Rev. I was Rev Betsy. I was one of the good Christians. And with. she told a great, a great story. Not so. They also every other week they do um, what they call hometown stories, which are not about murder necessarily. They're just like kind of crazy stories, whether they're about crazy coincidences or crazy things that you found when you remodeled your house. And the story that Betsy told was a great story, which is why it was picked. And they loved it. It was really fun to hear them like freaking out over like, oh, my God, this is so great. Yeah. Unbelievable. I've got to listen to this now. Wow. But you're not more scared in life from listening to these? Um, No, I do think like Betsy said, I think that there are aspects, there are places in my life where I need to take precautions to be safe. But those are not um, like I travel for work all the time in like pretty not great motels and really small towns. And when I travel, we've already alone, determined like, your your gold status or whatever. <laughs> my gold yeah. status. 
quality. Um, when I when I started this ministry, I was pretty brazen about that. Like I didn't think about coming and going and like I just didn't. And now I've heard enough of these stories. I know how someone can kill you in a motel room. So I do take, you know, different precautions and that's, it hasn't saved my life yet, but I mean, it's not, it doesn't hurt me to do it and it doesn't scare, I, it doesn't scare me to the point of distraction, but I do have some different resources about how to stay safe. Okay. Wow. Good job, Liz. Amazing. Thank you. Murderinos. Murderinos. Dickensians and Murderinos and <laughs> Betsy will give us our next group oh, of people. Nice. So I thought about doing, but I couldn't really kind of zero in. Like I'm always fascinated when you watch like a rockumentary or you know whatever it is about a band or a like old celebrity. Like how fan clubs like really started. You know, it was some fan somewhere who was like I'm president of the you know Olivia de Havilland fan club and like this is <laughs> how this is gonna go down right and and there's suddenly all these letters and just the real kind of you know peak of that before the internet kind of became involved and you know then being in a fan club is about getting a code so you can get the tickets early for uh. some show or whatever you know but like there used to be you know you give away like you know TLC's top fan is going to interview them on, you know, on MTV, you know, or whatever it is. Like there was this real kind of fans, you know, Beatle fans. You, know, you think about the kind of like how all of that started, like original fan clubs for bands. And I always thought that that was such, it felt like a much more, of course, authentic way to show fandom. So I'm actually going to mention a fandom that I have not yet really participated in. Like I haven't gone to things. I've looked up tickets to go, but I really found it during the pandemic. So I haven't quite crossed over yet, but that would be um, RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> I got my little shower cap. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh no, it's snow. Oh. Don't spit, just swallow it. Do we like, are we living? So you want to do hairography with the shower cap? Of course. That's an interesting choice. <laughs> but you know, I think like the shower cap, it's cute. It adds a little drama, a little variety. You could imagine how gorgeous your hair would look with the fan blowing, right? But you want to wear a shower cap, Absolutely. and that's your choice, so let's do it. So we discovered RuPaul's Drag Race during the pandemic. And of course I knew it was out there, but I knew that there were like umpteen seasons and there's all stars and there's all this stuff. But then once we started watching it, the storytelling on the show, the tongue in cheek on the show, the camp, but also the real stories of real people who have found drag as performance, drag as expression. They feel more fully themselves in the character that they've created, you know, from comedy queens to, you know, fishy queens, to, you know, all sorts of stuff in between. And my interest in how the performance actually happens, how the, how the costuming works, the makeup works. The pieces, like, it's just been, it's been really awesome to kind of get to know this group of queens. Like, I really, um, I haven't watched the HBO show, it's called We Are Here, where, where there are drag queens who go to visit towns and things like that. And small middle America has kind of a queer eye vibe to it. But, and it's also been interesting to watch the show evolve, too, you know, in terms of language and those sorts of things and how we have the conversation around 
you know, um, trans girls who are doing this, like how all this works. And, but it's, and, you know, I know there's drag con. I know that's a thing, right? They mm-hmm. do it in LA, New York and, uh, and the UK. And they just had the UK one in January, earlier in January, the 6th and the 8th, 6th and the 8th. But I would love to go and see some, like they'll tour with like a group of group of girls from the show. And it would be cool to like go do that. So we keep looking it up. We keep kind of being like, oh, we got to go. We got to go. But it is fascinating. Some of the challenges are to kind of do a workshop like you would do a drag con. And so it's either doing a workshop about, you know, body, about makeup, about wigs, about whatever it is. And these are all things I'm like, yeah, I'm really curious kind of how all of this works. I, I, I'm a fan. I follow people on Instagram. You know, I'm just, I've, you know, sometimes we, we binge it a little too much. I have to take a break, but, uh, but it's great. Love it. I feel like RuPaul has been around like my whole life. Yeah. Like RuPaul yes. has been a pop culture figure literally my whole life. So God yeah. bless mm-hmm. her. So yeah, a couple of things. First of all, uh, my barber went to the RuPaul Drag Race show in Las Vegas. Oh. Review, right? RuPaul wasn't Review, there. yes, yes. It was the show and some of the stars were on. He loved it. He said they were great. They were fabulous. And I guess he watches it enough to know some of the people who were on there that were contestants mm-hmm. and such. Um, I've never seen an episode. I have trouble with competition shows. Uh I, I don't, that's another, I'm like a little baby. I can't, do anything, you know, <laughs> can't like, handle it. Can't anything handle. where someone gets voted off the Island or whatever, or even like sports. Oh. What if you love a team and they lose, you know, like the big game, like the yeah. Super Bowl. It's awful. So anyway, you don't want to see anyone sashay away. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't. No, so, uh, don't. so that's one thing. The second thing is uh, I don't know what drag is. I know that it's different than being transgender. Uh, at least in my mind, it's a very different thing. I think there's something empowering about it for some of these, for some of the men who dress in drag. There's a way in which a part of them gets to shine where they don't maybe in their real lives that maybe they're fabulous in regular life. But here they get to go to this nightclub. They get to go to this party. They get to be out in the world in a way that feels really kind of powerful and wonderful. Well, and also, like, I love when they get into conversations about religion, because there's always a wide amount of experience on the show, whether they're people who have been ostracized, people whose parents have made them go, try to go to conversion camps, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of thing, all the way to, yeah, I got my first taste of performing in the Black church. Like, this is, mm-hmm. I still go, I still go every week, you know, that, you know, I'm in my choir, and and then it's a whole other thing. So that sort of spectrum, too, you know, like, when we talk about how often people regularly going to church was erased from, from television, right. Or going to any sort of synagogue or mosque to then have people being like, they're just putting on their makeup. So it was that moment where they're just chatting and whatever, before they're getting ready for a runaway. And it's like, Oh yeah, well, you know, my relationship with my mom and, and, you know, and this is, you know, what happened with my brother and, you know, and, and those sorts of kind of personal stories. I think that, that that again, I'm I, I love the story, right? So that's kind of where I where I dig in. What about you, Greg, as our resident straight man? Oh, I don't know. I I, I will <laughs> say this. I I am so with Liz. Like RuPaul feels like. I mean, it feels like RuPaul has been around for more than, like for longer than I've been alive. Like 
And I will say, like, the the conversation around this has definitely changed because there was an MTV, I want to say a Video Music Awards, or maybe it was an MTV Movie Awards, where they sent RuPaul out on stage with Milton Berle. Mm-hmm. And Milton Berle was making jokes about dressing up as a woman, and here he was with another guy dressed up as a woman, and RuPaul wasn't having any of it. Um, and it was one of those uh, awkward like presentations that actually moved the ball forward on like, mm-hmm. you know, this isn't this isn't the same thing as like what like this equivalency that you guys are making. It's this isn't what it is. Well, and as RuPaul says, if you can't love yourself, how the hell are you gonna love anybody else? Can I get an amen every every episode? And I'm just like, it's just so. Well, I mean, I don't know who said it, but it's, I hear it. I've heard it throughout my life. It's well, it's all drag, you know. Mm-hmm. You're all wearing drag right, right. now. You're, We're all performing drag, all presenting the time. an identity. Mm-hmm. But the other thing I would say is there is a difference. I think Greg, you were saying this. There's a difference between like frat boys, not to stereotype frat boys, dressing up in dresses and getting drunk and going mm-hmm. out and dancing together. And but even there, I think it probably lets out some part of themselves that they can't usually show. Uh, there's a difference between that and um, and the other thing that I can't think of right Drag. now. And well, an actual, yeah, guys and art, drag and feel, yeah. and, and not just feel empowered, but also it's it's entertainment, it's it's a persona, and 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 that's that is different. Uh, you were talking about Milton Berle. There is a way in which it, it it's either it's parody or it's actually self revealing in a way you. Maybe you don't even know before you put that dress on. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, that's that's I got to be honest. That's a world that I have never participated in, but I've always been shocked. Like every time I see like another season of RuPaul's Drag Race, I'm like, yeah, Lee, is that like the 50th season of RuPaul's Drag Race? Like It's, it's global, like, baby. It's so everywhere. Crazy. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. Do you remember the RuPaul yeah. show? It was like a talk show. Yes. That was on like when I was in middle school. And I think that RuPaul is from Seattle. Hmm. So I think that growing up, I saw RuPaul in drag and not in drag on like local TV shows and stuff like that. You bet I were. I danced to that. All right. All right. Well, it's great. I guess, yeah, I guess I'm going to wrap us up. I, I, I wish I had like a backup prepared because mine is kind of a downer. Oh, I went with the dark side of fandom for mine. So, um, so maybe I should have switched mine to Betsy's. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll do that. You could do that in post-production. You just, you just admitted that you stage all of this. So Uh. just, the bag is a far. Just, wow. just want to make note of that. Yeah, it would have been a switch just for this time. Um, right. So, uh, okay. So, I used to play video games a lot. I would, I would say. So, our podcast is about ten years old, and that's about when I stopped playing playing video games. Like, I, I would play them like all the way through seminary. Betsy would come down <laughs> to my apartment. And, like, I come down when Ruby was napping, and I'd watch you play Resident <laughs> Evil, and I'd be like. Have you gone over there? Go over there. I just enjoyed watching you. <laughs> exactly. So, like, uh, I imagine it's it's so funny because I I think all the time about how the, the fact that we don't really talk about gaming on this podcast a lot, and 
a lot of it is because none of us really play games or anything like that. Um, but it is a big part of pop culture. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking that, you know, probably the last game that I was really into and played a lot was a game that Naughty Dog put out about 10 years ago called The Last of Us. And the reason that it's on my mind is because there's a TV show. They made it into a TV show. Just yes. premiered. Yeah. No spoilers, please, because I haven't started watching yet. Yeah, so, I haven't so, started watching it either. So that's what I was going to say is like, this is one of those awkward spots where the game's been out for 10 years. And my my personal taste is to say... You know, if it's if something's been around for 10 years, like, how are there spoilers? But because it's a television show, I totally get it. So I'm not doing any spoilers for The Last of Us for either the first Last of Us or the second Last of Us, The Last of Us Part 2, which is what I'm going to talk about. Um, There's two of them? Greg, spoiler. <laughs> Come on. Okay, no. There, there I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. There are two video games. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so The Last of Us came out in like 2013. And then The Last of Us Part 2 came out, I don't know, like 2020, I guess. I think maybe, yeah, two years ago, three years ago. But when The Last of Us 2 was announced, there was a lot of excitement because the, the first game was very popular and people really liked it. And they liked the storyline of it. And it was basically like playing a movie. It's no... It's no, it's no secret as to why it was turned into a TV show because it was very cinematic when you were playing it the first time. So when The Last of Us 2 was announced, you know, uh, people got very excited about it until the, until uh, items were leaked about the storyline. And in those leaks, um, the fans of The Last of Us, or some of the fans of The Last of Us, I guess I should say, became very upset. Because they felt like the game was being taken away from them and that they were being forced to play something that they didn't want to play. Uh, and part of the the big secret of that is that they fans thought that they were going to have to play the game as either a, a gay character or a trans character. And this was like a big hubbub around before The Last of Us was even released, before Part 2 was even released. And so what ended up happening was that before the game was released, uh, fans of the game series were going on to rating sites, to review sites, and posting zero rating reviews of the game before it came out. And even if you go to a site like Metacritic now, what you'll see is that the critics um, score is like somewhere like 9.3 out of 10 or something like that. And the user score is somewhere around five, which is way up from what it used to be. It used to be at like 2.5 or 2.2. And it's this idea of like, there was this component, this online component who just blitzed like ratings boards and giving bad ratings, which is something that's been happening in fandom a lot. Um, lately, especially around stuff that appeals to, as Ricardo says, like these straight white guys who sort of feel entitled to an experience that's geared towards them. Because so few experiences are. I know, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so this is similar to like the, the, what was it? The Star Wars movie that came mm-hmm. out that everybody hated. And it just got, right. you know, flamed on IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes with like bad scores and stuff like that. 
And it's, um, you know, part of me is thinking, okay, well, this is really silly because ultimately what we're talking about are like crybabies who are just putting zero stars on internet sites that like, who cares? But there's also a part of it that's like, it feels like um, there's an energy that gets behind, like there's there's something that gets fostered or fe- like there's something festering in these people that then is given energy and it's it creates something really sort of um dark and angry and bad in the world right like somehow that energy that they have about that video game turns into something horrible like in reality not going into spoilers for the last of us part two most of the concerns that people had about that game just weren't true and then other parts that you know, were slightly true about what it was that they were saying. It's the characters of the game, right? Like it's the story being told in the game. So I think that the problem is that video games require you to do something, which is that you control the characters. So there's sort of this mapping that happens, right? Where it's like your brain and your muscles are making something happen on the screen. Therefore, the thing on the screen is you. And if the thing on the screen is a lesbian woman, then that's not you and you get angry, right? And Mm -hmm. that was kind of like what was happening uh, with the fans of this game. And it it became something that became really ugly. Um, Did men feel that way playing Tomb Raider, though? Well, again, right? Like, Tomb Raider was a sexualized female body, right? That they could sort of manipulate and do whatever. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, she was a badass, like, shooting guns and stuff like that. But it was something that was titillating to men to play, Mm -hmm. right? So they didn't need to have an identification of self. Right. I would would say that's true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I know that like gaming culture has really gotten out of hand over the last 10 years. I'm actually really glad that I'm out of it um, because I think that there is a nastiness to it and a messiness to it. I know that Gamergate, which I don't know a whole lot about, but I know that that was something that happened recently. And I, I just think that's sad. Like that feels really sad to me. And I don't know how fandom gets to that point where it goes from like, I love this. This is like my Dickens universe to I can't believe they did Tale of Two Cities. I'm never coming back to Dickens universe again. You know, it's like that's kind of how it works and it's like I just don't I just don't get it. I don't understand like how you can map your personality onto something so much that if it does something that you don't want it to the sky is falling. I know like nothing about gaming. I've never been a gamer. Right now I'm reading a terrific book that I would recommend to anybody. You might like it, Greg, called um, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin, which is the story of the, so far, I'm like a third of the way through the creation of a video game. And it's been in the 90s and it's been so enlightening to like learn about not just the technical it's a novel not just the technical aspects of how you do that but like the art and the storytelling and like the decisions you make about what kind of story you want to tell but i wonder if in the gaming world like maybe one of the changes from mario to like where we are right now i'm sure that there were always people even with mario 
who are like, um, I could play this all day long. And maybe they did. But it feels like now the sophistication of the games, the identification of like um, point of view and the graphics is so absorbing. There does seem to be an addictive quality for Mm -hmm. some people who live there. Like years ago, I lived, the guy in the apartment above me could play video games loudly for eight and 10 hours a day. Non-stop. I mean, it was non-stop. And it was like a little scary. He was in the military and then he came home and played shooter games like literally all day long. Like, did that happen with Donkey Kong? It might have. There were probably some kids who did that with Donkey Kong. Yeah, we talk about the technology we have creating community, right? And networking and playing with people all over the world and being on a team with them and doing whatever you're doing. But, you know, the technology we have, if you hate something, oh, man, you could nothing creates a community like hate does, right? Uh, we yeah. just had a guest on campus who would talk about that. And, like, the technology we have is awesome. Uh, but that at the same time, you know, you want to you want to be pissed off about something and hate something with let's all hate it together. And so this is another example of like, let's go. And then how can we infiltrate it at all levels from from not just message boards and not just groups, but to the actual ratings of the game and like all of that sort of thing. Like, look at look at the power that we have. Uh, You're so right, Betsy. And there's see, the, I think the the thing that brought it to my mind is that there's a there's some of this that I kind of see in church discourse around oh. like rectors that leave a parish. <laughs> and I'm not saying, okay, so I'm not saying anything about the spot that I'm in right now. Okay. I'm not saying anything okay. about that, but I've worked in a lot of Episcopal churches. I've worked in a lot of church churches just all over Episcopal or whatever. And ultimately like whatever happens, like whenever, whenever like a priest or a pastor or whatever leaves a church, they're either like a beloved saint or they're like the spawn of Satan, right? And there's like nothing in between. There's like no idea that this person did the best they could. They did all right in some things and they messed up in other things. That's never the discourse that I experience in churches. It's either they were the absolute worst fit or they were the best thing since sliced bread and we're never going to replace that person. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the that's kind of the mentality that it feels like And I'm it changed that dynamic changes over time. Like a lot of what I do is history taking with parishes, like in the transition process. And without a doubt, two rectors ago was beloved. But when he or she was one rector ago, they weren't. And it's amazing how the passage of time and nostalgia and the inevitable decline of the institution like it just skips a rector. The beloved rector position just skips a rector. So if you leave a place and it bums you out that, I mean, you won't know is the beauty of it, but it bums <laughs> you out to know that people might be talking negatively about your tenure after you leave, just wait seven years, <laughs> five years, and you'll be the beloved rector. You're good to go. Yeah. So I have, I, I've got like three things to say. And the first one is, you you started making this connection with church and the gaming stuff. And I was like, what, what is the connection here? But then it hit me because the word that came up for me when you were talking about these gamers being angry about the lesbian woman character they had to play was um, betrayal. Right. 
I felt betrayed. You know, yeah. this is my world and you're making me do something that is not my thing. And that's exactly what can happen when a rector leaves a sense of betrayal. Why are they leaving? Were we not that were did we not make them happy or uh, betrayal? I mean, I don't know. It, maybe it's not always betrayal, but there is that sense of like they took something that I had established some affection and energy for, you know, the, this church community, this gaming world was something that fed me and I had expectations of it that it did not meet. And now I am betrayed and I'm going to lash out. So uh, that's a great connection you made there. Uh, if if that's what you were doing with that. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, it's just, it's a similar energy was kind of, mm-hmm. yeah, that's all. I, the other thing is, I don't even remember what the context was, but I'm not a gamer either, but there was some game or something online where you ha- I had to pick a character to do a thing. And I, <laughs> you can get this out of the podcast if you want. Uh, I always pick like the muscle bound guy, you know, the big, okay. powerful guy. And yeah, it feels good. It feels like, yeah, I'm the muscle guy. Um, and there's, you know, there's like the woman and there's like the thin guy and the, so I'm always going for the muscle guy. So I just, I'm thinking, I wonder if that's hard for these people who it, it's probably a bit of fantasy fulfillment or something uh, the way that in my opinion, things like sports are, and, you know, you admire other I'll just stick with the straight male admiring other men. And it's a safe way to do that mm-hmm. maybe. And so these, these young men playing the gamer games that don't get their muscle man character or they're really kind of handsome guy uh, because they're maybe not those things uh, get really angry. The third thing is you think there's not flame wars in the Dickens universe. Let me tell you. <laughs> oh man, there was one. You're year- ready. So the other, what they do is at the end of the Dickens universe, at the end where the dance happens on Friday night, they announce next year's book. And one of the things, one of the threads throughout the week is, what do you think it's going to be? What do you think it's going to be? Well, one year they decided to not do a Dickens book at all. They chose George Eliot's Middle March for the next wow. year. No, no. They, I know. I know. <laughs> What? I have to tell you, some people literally started crying. They started <laughs> crying and weeping. <laughs> and some people were like, yeah. And I spoke to this woman who'd been crying and I was like, are you okay? And she said, I only have so many years left in me and I wanted to do all the Dickens books here. And now I have to miss this one. And she was crying. This oh, my woman. pastoral care. Oh, I know. And so, well, anyway, so, so, so that happened. And, you know, however, it was a great year. I went, I loved it. Never would have read it otherwise. And um, it brought some people in who were George Eliot fans who now come to Dickens universe. So I don't know, just to say. That preaches. That story preaches. (laughs) Wow. Agreed. Wow. I'm going to preach that the next time that I have to do like a welcoming your new rector sermon or something. It's because it's about change and it's, the unexpected. And I think that in addition to betrayal in those circumstances, there's also just a ton of fear. Like yeah. what does, what, what does it mean if, if these things that I hold dear are changing so much? Yeah. So that's, kind of, that's a great little, little parable. I only have, 
only have so many years left at this church, and this is who they picked mm-hmm. to be the rector. Yep, who's gonna bury me? Right. Did she go? Did she go to the Dickens Universe website and give them zero stars? <laughs> oh, there we <laughs> this go. This isn't my Dickens Universe. <laughs> no, but she was pretty vocal about it. Um, and then she came back the next year, and all seemed to be well. She seemed a little angry the first couple of days, but then she settled in. <laughs> So great. Well, what happened? So the, the, is 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 that game? It wasn't as popular. Part two then. No, oh, Last of Us Part Two is a masterpiece. It's just it's so it's beautiful and lovely, and the storytelling is just extremely well done. And said I walked beside the still waters, and they restore my soul, but I can't walk. On the path of the right Because I'm wrong No, I can't walk On the path of the right Because I'm wrong What are you doing, kiddo? You really gonna go through with this? I'm gonna find, and I'm gonna kill every last one of them. But like the problem with fandom sometimes is that it's too much. Like your personality can't be a video game. I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. just can't. And I mean, I love this show. We've been doing this show for 10 years, but. My personality isn't popping collars. It's a hobby, right? And I hope it's a mm-hmm. hobby for you guys. It's like it's my whole life, life, Greg. Right? This, this is, is all that I have. Don't take it away from me. I don't, don't know how to change. be off of this podcast. <laughs> this is how I express myself. You'll find it. <laughs> if you cancel this. Zero stars. Zero stars. Zero stars. Zero stars just at the thought of it. They made fun right. of me for listening to this podcast. Zero stars. <laughs> Zero stars. All right. Wow. I have to say okay. that, was, that was one of the most diverse. That was great. Yes. Ever done. And yeah, we were all over the century books, A TV show, podcast, mm-hmm. and gamer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's it. Another episode of Popping Collars in the Books. Thanks for listening. You can support your favorite Episcopal podcast by buying our merch. Just go to poppingcollarspodcast.com. Click the little tab at the top that says Popping Collars Merch and More. And you will find our store full of fabulous items like shirts, stickers, dog blankets, wall art, whatever you want with the Popping Collars logo you should be able to find. (laughs) Dog blankets. Yeah, dog blankets. <laughs> what? <laughs> I know what my friends are getting for Christmas. <laughs> you can also find us hanging out in the closed cafe of EpiscopalJournal.org. We love them. You will too. Check them out for all your Episcopal news and journaling needs. And with that, that is Popping Collars for this time. Thank you, Ricardo. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Betsy. We'll see you next time and keep those collars popped. Pop, pop. By the way, did you buy merch, Ricardo? I did. I yeah. got three stickers. 
it doesn't it does it it doesn't tell me who buys stuff, but it says like the destination for this purchase is California. I was like, oh, that sounds like Ricardo. <laughs> Popping collars, merch. I'm looking at it right now. Can't wait! I can't wait for my dark heather T-shirt. I hope it's all cotton. I have a feeling it's not. Ooh, nice like coffee. Co- Ooh, a hoodie. Oh, I didn't see the hoodie. Ooh, and a tote bag. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell on this earth forevermore. Said I walk beside the still waters and they restore my soul. But I can't walk on the path of the right. Because I'm...